Amen. Amen. We can go and take your seats, and let me invite you to get your Bibles out. Uh, turn to 1 Peter 3. Uh, 1 Peter 3 is where we're going to be this morning as we're continuing through uh, the book of 1 Peter. And really, I want to begin uh, our time together this morning by way of review. I know I just told you to turn to 1 Peter 3. Actually, I want you to start by looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, because last week, uh, what we saw in 1 Peter 2 uh, was really the beginning of what is a two-part sermon. Uh, so last week and today is really a singular sermon uh, that's unfolding over two Sundays or was inter uh, interrupted by a week-long intermission. Because when you look at chapter 2, <clears throat> let me actually have you look at verse 12 of chapter 2. Uh, Peter says this to the exiles. He says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And, and, and so there's this general exhortation that as the people of God were to live honorably. And then starting in 2.13, Peter begins to give specific ways by which believers do that. And it's framed around this repeated exhortation to be subject. We're to be subject to every human institution in 13. We're to be subject to your masters in 2.18. And then what we get to here today the beginning of 3.1, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Uh, but it's important that we see these in totality, comprehensively together, because what Peter is wanting to do, he wants the believers to see that we are to live honorably, uh, both in, or, or in, in the civic realm, uh, in the professional or social realm, as well as in the personal or in the household realm. And so the main idea that we have this morning is... Surprise, surprise, same main idea we had last week, uh, which is this. We live honorably when we submit out of love for Jesus. Let me say that again. We live honorably when we submit out of love for Jesus. So we are looking at 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, which is the third and final section of this B subject. I'm going to read the entirety of the text, would encourage you to follow along. In fact, let me ask you to stand uh, as we honor the reading of God's word. Loved ones, this is God's word to us. And here's what it says. First Peter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Loved ones, this is the word of the Lord, and it will stand for all of time. Amen? Amen. Why don't you take a seat, and we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, gracious and good, Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. God, we are thankful for the ways that the word of God will do the work of God. And God, we're asking that that's exactly what you would do here this morning. God, that by your word, you would open our eyes to see. God, you would open our, you would open our ears to hear and our hearts to know and understand of the fullness and the totality and the richness of your truths that you have for us here this morning. So God, we pray that we would come as people and we'd be submitted to your word, that we would hear what your word says, God, that we would believe and obey all that you have for us. And God, as always, we want to pray 
another church in the area. And this morning, God, praying for our neighbors right down the street for gospel light. God, for Pastor Brent Lenentine and that body of believers, we are praying, God, that you'd be working and moving and accomplishing your goodwill and your good purposes in them uh, in the same way that we desire you'd be doing that in us. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would have your way and accomplish all that you want to accomplish in and through your people. We pray this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. All right, title of the message uh, this morning is really a take uh, from last week. It's Living Honorably Part 2. Living Honorably Part 2. Again, we're just uh, tacking on to what we saw at the end of chapter 2. And again, the same main idea uh, that we live honorably when we submit out of love for Jesus. And so the text that we come to this morning, here, let's just deal with a couple things right out of the gate, because I know in the heart of mankind what a number of you were thinking as I was reading this text, you were going, yes, this isn't for me, and you could not be further from the truth. So anyone in here who's a wife, you know, well, yeah, this this got a lot to say to me, but everyone else is like, hey, I'm off the hook. No, you're not. In fact, let me prove it to you here. First of all, let's start with you husbands. First of all, you have a word at the end, okay? So if you're like, hey, I'm off the hook, did you not hear verse 7? So it's coming for you. Uh, But on top of that, so much of what is going on in verses 1 through 6 should inform how you love and serve and encourage and care for your wife. It's just as much for you as it is for them. Secondly, you might be saying, well, I'm not a husband or I'm not a wife. I'm not married. This does not apply to me, okay? If you ever have any intention of being married, yes, it does. This is a great opportunity for you to pay attention and figure out what it is that you should be looking for in a potential or future spouse and who you should be as a potential or future spouse. And you might be saying, ah, Mike, I never have any intention of being married. Good. You know how to encourage and stimulate and care for your married friends in your family and in the church of God. The point being, no one's off the hook. So let's just be really, really clear. This is for all of us in as much as it might feel limiting in that six of the seven verses is directed toward wives. Uh, But further, what we're going to find, there's a number of principles that are going to show up in the text that have far broader application than just to wives or husbands. So with that, let's get into this, since now we know this really is for all of us. Two commands that Peter gives, one in verse 1, one in verse 7. That's how we'll frame our time in God's Word. Uh, And the first in verses 1 through 6, here it is. Wives, submit to your own husbands. That's the command. right? And and again, we want to see this in the context of the setting of the, there are three groups that, that Peter's addressing. There's the civic way that we do this. There's the professional or social way that we do this. And now there's the personal or household way that we do this. And again, his intention, his desire is he wants believers to know how is it that we live in a society that's hostile to the gospel, but in a manner and a way that is going to promote the glory of God. And so he's saying, here it is. It's to submit. Wives, you're to submit. Now, can we can we just be honest? Right? Church is a good place to be. Well, every place is a good place to be honest. Church is a particularly good place to be honest. But here's the reality. I know that for a number of you, when you hear that word submit, you're like, ugh. Right? You brace, and you stiffen, and, and, and you start to recoil, and you're like, ugh. So here, can we just deal with the elephant in the room? Let's just dispel with the elephant in the room. Let's just come right at this. So let me talk about what submission is not. 
and then let's talk about what submission is, and then we can actually get out what God wants us to get at here in his word. First of all, submission is not blind adherence, right? It, it, it's not that, uh, that there's permission for someone else to force you to sin. Submission is not that you always have to agree. Submission does not mean that you are inferior in statue or value or input, and submission certainly is never meant to uh, tolerate or condone abuse of any form. Further, and this is, this is critically important, you've got to make sure you understand this, this is going to frame the entirety of our time in God's Word. Hear this, submission is not adherence to a principle. Submission is adherence to the person of God who is calling you to act or live in a particular way. Did you hear that? Submission is not, I'm adhering to the principle. Submission is, I'm adhering to the person of God, and I'm going to act in the manner of the way that God calls me to. We submit because we choose to obey God. And so here's what submission is. Juan Sanchez, a pastor in the Austin area, I love his definition of this. Here's, here's how he says it. He says, submission is sharing equally in essence, but different roles of authority. And if you're troubled by that, just know that that's the exact same thing we see in the Trinity. God the Father, well, let me, God the Son and the Spirit are in submission to God the Father. And so, so listen, if, if, even though they are equal in person, equal in essence, equal in being, the Son and the Spirit are submitted to the Father. And so if it's good enough for Jesus and it's good enough for the Holy Spirit, it better be good enough for you and I. Let me just say one other thing. Let me caution all of us. Be very, very careful that you don't ever come to God's Word and you are whispering in your mind what was uttered in the garden. Did God actually say? Does God really mean? Is this really God's intent? Yes, it is. I can't say that emphatically enough. The command is clear. Uh, our issue is not comprehension. Our issue is not understanding. That's not our issue. Our issue is whether or not we're going to choose to obey and believe God's word and that what God has given us is, in fact, what is best. When you think about submission, think about this. Submission reflects the character and the nature of God. Submission is what typifies the attitude of obedience and surrender to the Lord. This is what you saw in Jesus over and over and over again throughout the entirety of the Gospels, even though submission for him actually meant death. And as you think about that, consider this. Defiance to God's word reflects the character and the nature of Satan. Defiance is what is seen in the fall, it's what's seen in our sin, it's what's seen in our rebellion. So loved ones, we, we're coming to a text that a lot of us might not like. We have to fight the desire to control what God has commanded. So God, help us to be people who will believe and adhere to what God is saying. And you're like, well, this should be a lot of fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. Okay, here we go. Uh, wives, submit to your own husbands. Uh, Peter does three things here. He does three things. He's going to talk about the motivation. He's going to talk about the method. And then he's going to give us the example. Okay, so that's how we're going to walk through verses 1 through 6. But let's begin with this idea. Verses 1 and 2, the motivation. The motivation for submission is this, to win others. Here, here's what it says. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, not all husbands, just your husband, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. 
Right, so the motivation first is to win others. It could be that you're winning your husband or what we're going to see in verse 2, that it might be that you're winning others. Right? Both are alluding in different ways to salvation. And so what we see first of all in verse 1 around this, this motivation is the motivation of gospel opportunity. We choose to submit because there's gospel opportunity embedded in this. That's a very legitimate, also a very helpful motive. And notice Peter doesn't qualify this. Right? He doesn't say submit to good husbands. He doesn't say submit to believing husbands. He doesn't say submit to only the husbands that get it right. No, he's like, this is for all wives. All wives are to submit, even wives who don't have believing husbands. And once again, what Peter is doing is he's helping us to see that our conduct is what gives credibility to gospel witness. That's a word for all of us, by the way. That's, just not, that's not just for wives. That is for all of us. Your conduct is what will give credibility to your gospel witness. How we conduct ourselves is either going to make the gospel more compelling or it's going to make it disingenuous. disingenuous. And so, loved ones, the, our life is ultimately about living for the glory of God. Right? The glory and the praise and the honor and the delight of God should be at the center of all that we do. And submission enables that because it enables gospel opportunity. And it may be that you are encouraging your believing husband in this. It may be that you are a witness to your unbelieving husband in this. But here's how it frames this implication. When you think about the motivation of gospel opportunity, here's just a few ways. And again, this, is, this principle is broader than just in the confines of marriage. right? But that, that's what we're talking about. Gospel motivation, first of all, enables us to forego things. When you're motivated by the gospel, you are willing to forego things. You might forego certain rights or a certain status or a certain privilege or a certain opportunity or, or a certain level of power. Right? Gospel opportunity, gospel motivation enables us to forego things. And keep in mind, it's all temporal. It's all going to come to an end at some point in time. We're going to die or Jesus is coming back. Secondly, gospel motivation enables us to invest eternally. When we're motivated by the gospel, how we invest our time, our energy, our, our money, our resources is framed by, by what's going on eternally, not just what's right in front of us. And then thirdly, gospel motivation enables patience and waiting. We can wait with patience for salvation. We can wait with patience for vindication. We can wait with patience for the reward. We can wait with patience for the healing or whatever it is. Gospel motivation enables us to heed God's command, which in this case, in 1 Peter 3, it's that wives submit to their husbands. All right, loved ones, ask yourself this. Will you allow gospel motivation to enable obedience to God's command? In what, whatever way that that is applicable in your life, will you allow gospel motivation to enable obedience in your life to what God has commanded you in his word? There's the motivation of gospel opportunity, but notice in verse 2, there's a few other motivations that, that Peter uh, draws out as well. They're not as explicit as what we see in verse 1, but they're equally important. So in verse 2, he says, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So first of all, I want you to look at that word respectful. See, what, what, what Peter is, is alluding to here is a second motivation that's tied to God's character. This is the motivation of God's character. You see that word respectful. The word literally there means fear. Now, when we think about fear, we tend to think about fear in one of two ways. We, we either tend to think of like terror and horror, or we think of reverence and awe. 
Okay, let, let me try to delineate the difference between the two. If you are in the woods and you turn a corner and there is an angry mama grizzly bear, that's terror, right? That's horror that you are feeling in that moment. But that's very different than, than if you are at the edge of the ocean looking out at the entirety of the sea or looking at some coral reef or uh, looking at the northern lights on a particular evening. That is reverence and awe. And there's a distinction. Both of those fall under the umbrella of fear, but there is a distinction. And in First Peter, fear is always connected back to God. And so here's what Peter's saying with this, this notion of respectful conduct. He's saying that a wife's submission is actually motivated by God's character and God's nature and God's being. See, wives can obey God's command because they're compelled by God's character. That's what he's getting at. Now, now again, this is a principle that extends beyond just this specific application because this should be true of us in a variety of ways. Not simply that a wife would submit, but that all of us in a variety of ways should be choosing obedience to God's command because we're motivated by God's character. And so a, a reverence of God, an awe of God, is compelling us to act in a particular manner. Now, now this right here, this, this notion, and li listen carefully, loved ones, this might be why some of you struggle to obey God in your life. It's because you don't fear God. See, you're not being compelled by God's goodness to do what God calls you to. See, this right here, this is actually a gospel principle, right? That when you recognize, I'm not just committing to a behavior, right? I'm not just adhering to submission, but I'm submitting to the person of God, right? Remember, submission is not ultimately adherence to a principle. It's, it's adherence to the person of God. When I realize I'm committing myself to the Lord, that's what enables me to submit or obey or follow or whatever the particular thing that God is calling me to. And so as you think about this, and maybe some of you are like, oh man, yeah, that's, that's true, that's right. I, I, I want to be better at this. Do not turn around and be like, I'm going to try harder, and I'm going to do better, and I'm going to white-knuckle this thing, and I'm just going to go as hard as I can, because you're actually setting yourself up for failure, because it's not about the activity. It's not about the performance. It's about that you're committed to the person. So listen, listen, listen. You have to love God before you can obey God. Did you hear that? You have to love God before you're ever going to obey God. So many of us, we try to do the inverse. It's like, well, I'm going to obey him, and that's going to make me love him. No, you're going to fail, and then you're just going to be frustrated. Right? For so many of us, our frustration can be traced back to the fact that at the end of the day, what I'm lacking is a love for God. And so it's not about trying harder. It's not about being better. It's about delighting yourself in the Lord. It's about enjoying the Lord. It's about praising the Lord. It's about loving God. Ask yourself, do you find yourself trying to adhere to principles or to the person of Christ? Are you more comfortable in the confines of rules or in relationship with Christ? Are you driven by performance or by a desire to please Christ? Oh, God help us that we'd be motivated by Jesus. Right? When they see your respectful conduct, but also your pure conduct. There's a third motivation, and it's, it's similar to the first, but distinct uh, in that it's broader than just within the household. 
right? This is the motivation of public witness, right? Pure conduct. Remember, Peter's concern, Peter's concern is how do Christians live in a society that's hostile towards Christianity? In fact, go back to 2.12. Let, let me show you again. He says, keep your conduct among who? Tell me. The Gentiles. The Gentiles are unbelievers, right? So when you see conduct, it's tied to public witness in the book of 1 Peter, right? So, so pure conduct is what actually sets the stage for proclamation. It's the foundational integrity that is meant to accompany our witness. Ask yourself, are you willing to live in a particular way to afford yourself opportunities for witness? In this context, in this setting specifically, wives, that's that you would be subject to your own husbands. So the motivation for submission is to win others. Look now at verse 3 and 4. We see the method, the method of submission, which is the adorning of the inner person. The method is that we adorn the inner person. So there's a contrast in verse 3 and 4 between the inner and outer person, the internal and the external adorning. And essentially what Peter's doing is he's posing the question uh, primarily to the ladies. He's saying, are you adorning yourself with Christ or are you adorning yourself with the world? Look at your Bibles. Here's what he says. Do not, do not verse 3, let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. Right? You see the contrast. So what we see in verse 3 is that we're to focus less on external beauty. We focus less on external beauty. And I say we because this is just as much for you men as it is for the women. Brothers, are you hearing me on this? This is just as much for you. In fact, this may be even more for you than it might be for the ladies. Because men, the ways in which you will either choose to elevate internal or external beauty will go a long way to determining whether or not women are going to pursue internal or external beauty. So all of this, I get it, it's directed at wives. I'm just telling you there's massive implications for, for all you guys on the other side. right? So th th this is all of us. We'll focus less on external beauty. Now, let me also be clear. Right? Don't do something weird with verse 3. This doesn't mean that if you ever braid your hair, you've sinned. It's not wrong to wear jewelry. Right? It's not wrong to wear nice clothes. That is not what Peter's getting at. Right? He, he's not saying, oh, no, just give up. Like, don't ever try. No, that's not. Please don't. Okay? That's not what Peter's saying. What he's saying is that your hope is not to be in those things. That you're not to find your identity in those things. That those aren't the things that you most pursue and seek out and invest yourself in. And what he wants us to understand, that our society just can't seem to wrap our mind around, the reason for this is because external beauty will fade. It's going to fade. See, the point that he wants us to understand, external beauty is fleeting and it is a fickle place to put our hope in. External beauty is a horrible savior. It's a horrible savior. And, and, and so, so don't hear this and be like, I'm going to throw out all my makeup and all my mascara and all and like that. No, that, that's not what he's saying. And, and, and you, don't, you don't have to feel bad. Like if you're like, man, I, this is a bad day to really put on the makeup this morning. Don't slink down. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not his point. His point is don't identify in that. Don't put your hope in that. But see, this, this right here, man, this, this is a word for our society like no other. So can we just be really, really blunt about some things? 
We, we, we talk all the time in our society about beauty, and we're almost always focused on externals. So let me just be really blunt. I, I learned some things. Um, I, don't, I don't dabble much in the, in the beauty world, but I dabbled a little bit doing a little research. Um, so let, let me just give you a, a few things that honestly are going to be uh, utterly depressing. But as far as our society is concerned, all the pretty people, and I'll put that in air quotes here for a moment, are basically in their 20s. So I went, I went and researched like the average age of models in a variety of different industries, and they fall within about a five-year, five to seven-year window. It's like 21, 22 to like 28, 27, 28. It's like, oh, that, that's kind of depressing. And so, so here's, think about this for a second. Here's what this means. If we're going to subscribe to the world's definition of beauty, it means that for the vast majority of your adult life, you're going to be fighting a losing battle. Like for most of your adult life, you're just on the wrong side of pretty, right? Like, like if you're like, you know, I was, a little, I was a little discouraged about turning 30 or turning 40 or turning 50. Mike, you're not helping. Yes, I am. I promise I'm helping. Here's why. Because once we can get over the hurdle of realizing, oh, if I turn 30 and I'm on the wrong side of pretty, that means the vast majority of my life is just lived in ugly, right? And, and so then, and so then it's like, God help us that there's a better word. And see, that, that concept, that way of thinking, check this out, th that explains why, I was blown away by this, do you want to know how much the cosmetic market generates on an annual basis? Anyone want to take a guess? How much? Seven billion? Ten? You guys aren't even close. Check this out. Almost $400 billion annually. And here's the worst part. That doesn't even include surgeries. We're just talking about like anti-aging skin cream and foundation. All this stuff you'd find in your bathroom is wrapped up. It's $386 billion a year. See, today's atmosphere is a constant bombardment of external surface skin-deep appearance being the standard of beauty. And once you hit 30, you're on the wrong side. So praise God that his word has a far better word for us. He has a corrective truth that we all need. See, the world's standard of beauty is not God's standard of beauty. And we should praise God for that. And so what we need is a shift in emphasis. Less focus on external beauty. More focus on the inner person. And what this means, listen, listen, what this means is that both men and women, both men and women have to believe what God is telling us right here. So as you think about that, just ask yourself, where is your focus? Where is your emphasis? Where are you investing your time and your energy? Is it externally or is it internally? Here, maybe this is a helpful way to think about it. On a typical day, how much time do you prepare yourself physically for the day? And how much time do you spend preparing yourself or, or, or spiritually for the day? Or even think about this morning, right? You're coming to church Right, the, 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 the very definition of, of, of gathering together and worship. And, and how much time did you spend preparing to worship the Lord? And how much time did you spend getting done up? See, what would life look like if we invested more energy, more time, um, more of, of ourselves into cultivating the beauty of the inner person above the outer person? Let's focus on external beauty. Let me just say one other thing here because I think it's worth uh, just giving the apologetic that's so important. 
there's a deep irony that goes on here in 1 Peter 3 because this is a passage that many people in society will actually use and they'll say, see, the Bible doesn't even care about women. The Bible demeans women. The Bible doesn't value women. See, they have to submit. Loved ones, that, that couldn't be further from the truth. The Bible is actually who's upholding women. See, 1 Peter 3, what 1 Peter does is it is exposing how the world actually objectifies women. That women, you're only valuable if you're pretty. That's what the world says. What God's word is saying and what God's word is upholding is that women are inherently valuable and they have inherent worth, not based on whether or not they're pretty, but because they're, they're image bearers and they're co-heirs with Christ. And so there, there, there's a fascinating disconnect that goes on in our society about how we read this. And so women, will you please believe what God is telling you? Because this is wildly liberating if you'll hear it. You're not an object and your worth isn't determined on whether or not you're pretty. You're measured by the inner person of your heart. Fix your attention and your being on that. Men, when you speak to your wife and when you speak to your daughters, you talk about and you rave about and you compliment the inner person of their heart. Let that be what you are telling them and reinforcing in them. And young men, when you consider a spouse, don't consider someone who you think is pretty today. You consider someone who's beautiful internally because that's the only thing that is ultimately going to last. So we're going to focus less on external beauty. Look at verse 4. We're going to focus more on the inner person. We focus more on the inner person. It says, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable, circle that word imperishable, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So focus more on the inner person. Here's the first thing, that there's this imperishable beauty. I want you to think about what this is saying for a moment, right? That the inner person has a beauty that will literally never die and never fade. I have not seen that infomercial yet for some anti-aging cream. You will never have wrinkles for all of eternity. No, you have to use our product over and over and over again, and it just, it just helps just a little bit. Even that's debatable. And yet here... No, no, there's an imperishable, undying beauty. The inner person is who will be eternally beautiful. This is what we should endeavor to cultivate and to pursue and to seek out. And notice a couple ways that Peter helps us to think about this. First of all, he talks about this gentle spirit, right? There's both a gentle and quiet spirit, right? So gentle. Now, when you think of gentle, I think sometimes we think of gentle, we tend to think of kind of soft, very tender, uh, quiet. That's not untrue, but, but I think it's important to understand gentle is not incompatible with being loud or, or, or being talkative or being energetic or being extroverted. In fact, gentleness is akin to humility. Um, and and so, so maybe this is helpful, right? When you think about humility, humility is understanding who I am in light of who God is. See, what humility understands is our proclivity to sin. Humility understands God's gracious care in our lives. And humility understands the saving work of Jesus on our behalf. So, so here's really what's fostered in gentleness. The gentle person can invite and welcome others in because they know how they've been invited and welcomed in by Christ. See, the gentle person can be disarming because they know how Christ has been disarming to them. The gentle person can be vulnerable because they find their identity in Jesus not in the approval of others. I don't need you to like me. I don't need you to approve of me. I'm accepted in Jesus. I've got all that I need. The gentle person can be gracious towards others' failures because they know 
how Christ has been gracious to them in their own failures. So if anything, the gentle person actually has this deep confidence in them. That confidence isn't in themselves. It is rooted in the person and the work of Jesus. So this inner person that's gentle, then also this quiet spirit. And again, not incompatible with those who are talkative or loud or energetic. In fact, the quiet spirit here is akin to one who is bringing peace or calm. So think about what Jesus says in the Beatitudes. Right? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are what? They're going to be the children of God. They're bringing peace to different situations and to different settings, and even in the midst of conflict. So when you think about imperishable beauty, it's manifested in this gentle and quiet spirit. It's a humble and peaceable wife. But don't miss, don't miss, don't miss what God says about the wife who exhibits these qualities. Look at the end of verse 4, which in God's sight is very precious. This is what's precious to God. This is, and which, by the way, that's, that's the perspective that matters, right? Is what God thinks. Wives, focus your energy and focus your attention on pursuing the inner person and adorning the inner person. Husbands, cultivate a home that elevates the inner person above and beyond the external fading beauty that rests on the outside. Parents, train your daughters to grow up to be women who will focus on adorning their inner person, not their outer person. Parents, train and raise up your sons not to look at a woman as someone who's pretty, but to seek out a woman who is adorning her inner person with true beauty. God, help us that we would adorn the inner person. And then we see the example in verse 5 and 6. And it's to put your hope in God. Here's what Peter says. He says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. And here's the example. It's Sarah, verse 6. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Right, so the example is that we're going to put our hope in God, which, by the way, this is crucial to the entirety of, of all submission. All three examples, whether it's government or masters or wives, are enabled to submit, not because the government is good, not because masters are good, and not because husbands are good. In fact, all three examples in, in Peter's book, they're all terribly bad, right? They're all awful. They're able to do this because God is good, and we can put our hope in him, and he can be trusted. And so hear this. When your hope is in God, you can do what God says because you trust that God is good and he will be faithful to his promises. Let me just say that again. When your hope is in God, you can do what God says because you, you trust that God is good and that he will be faithful to his promises. I mean, loved ones, th th this, is, this whole thing right here, this, this is what's at the root of the gospel. Th th this is the hope that we hold on to in Christ. We put our hope in God. In fact, that's what Peter told us to do back in chapter 1. Look at verse 13. One thirteen, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's like, we're all in on Jesus. All chips, middle of the table, all in on him. Our hope is fully resting in him. In fact, the author of Hebrews says the same thing. Hebrews 10, 23 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And why can we do that? For he who promised is faithful. 
That's why we can do this. Put your hope in God because he's faithful. And when you put your hope in God, notice what happens. Look at verse 5 and 6. It enables us to do some things. First of all, uh, we, we, when we put our hope in God, we can obey God's commands. Right at the end of verse 5, Sarah could submit to her own husband. Verse 6, Sarah could obey Abraham. Right? She could obey God's command because she was trusting in the Lord. Listen, our willingness to obey is reflective of the level of our trust. Did you hear that? Your willingness to obey is going to be reflective of the level of your trust. Right? The one who, 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 who doesn't trust God. I don't believe that what God is saying here is ultimately good. I don't believe that this is best. I don't believe that this is what I want. You're going to struggle to obey. It's the person that trusts God that's free to obey. Hope in God enables obedience. In fact, Steve read for us. I want you to flip over real quick. Flip back to Colossians 3 for just a moment because I want you to see this. That we see the same thing unfolding in, in, in a parallel text. So Colossians 3, one of the household code texts, right? Wives submit to husbands, verse 18. Husbands love your wives, 19. Children obey your parents, 20. Fathers not provoke your children, 21. Bond servants obey in everything, 22. It's a lot of the same things that we've seen in Peter. I want to focus on verse 23 and 24. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. See, we can obey God's command because we trust God. That's the whole point. It's the whole point of what's going on here. We can obey God's command. Notice one other thing here, verse 6 of 1 Peter 3. It seems counterintuitive. Right? You are children if you do good. And then look at this last line, and do not fear anything that is frightening. That seems counterintuitive, right? Hey, don't be afraid of what's really scary. Uh, how does that work? And yet, that, that, that's exactly what he says. Now, now, this is less a command and more a result, right? So don't see this as a command, but more of a result of what happens when you hope in God. We're freed from fear because we're trusting God's hand over every facet of our life. See, when you hope in God... You are freed from fear. It's not a command to not be afraid. It's the result of what happens when you're hoping and trusting in the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands. All right, fellas, your turn. Yeah, who said woohoo? That was funny. Some wife, some wife is like, praise God, it's about time my husband takes it on the chin here for a minute. And you're going to, guys. So here we go, verse 7. Likewise, husbands... Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So wives, you're to submit to your own husbands. Husbands, you're to live with your wife in an understanding way. Now, here's what I think is really interesting. For the first two groups, Peter didn't say anything about anyone on the other side. So, like, I don't know if he gets to this point where he's like, nope, got to say something to the husbands. Just can't let this one go. But for some reason, he addresses them. But he did not address government, and he did not address, uh, address masters. But he does give a brief word to the husbands. Also, if you're frustrated, ladies, if you're frustrated, like, why so much content for the wives but not much for the husbands? Ephesians 5 is flip-flopped. 
Okay, so it's fair game in the totality of the scriptures. We're just preaching through First Peter right now. So if you want to, go home and read Ephesians 5 as a family. That's your call. But the word for the husbands here is to live with your wives in an understanding way. Now that word understanding, that phrase understanding way, it means literally according to knowledge. What this means, husbands, is that you have personal insight into your wife that, that allows you to lead and serve and love and care for her. And you can do so with consideration because you, you know her and you've paid attention to her. Peter's saying the most, the most elevated care, concern, and love should be what is, what, what is given to your wife. And so husbands, study your wife. Study your wife. Keep studying your wife. Be curious. Ask questions. Uh, figure out what's meaningful to her. Initiate with her. Have conversations with her. Uh, proactively lead her. Look to serve her. Care for her. And then once you figure all that out, that's how you're going to live with your wife. You take all that you've learned, all your insights, all your observations, all that you've gathered, and that enables you to love and serve and care for your wife. I see a lot of women smiling right now. They're like, I like this. I like how this has turned. Like, guys aren't smiling as much right now. Right? Husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way. Here, here's one thing. Husbands, show honor to your wife. He says showing honor. In fact, this is revealed in a few different ways. Remember, we saw this word honor last week. And it's this idea that there is dignity that is bestowed on another that is befitting of a fellow image bearer. Right? So in verse 17 of chapter 2, honor everyone and honor the emperor. And also you're to honor your wife. But there's a dignity that is bestowed upon them that is befitting a fellow image bearer. And it's revealed in a few different ways. It says, first of all, showing honor to the woman is the weaker vessel. So we're to honor her stature. She's the weaker vessel. Now, we don't have to fight this. Right? We don't have to try to explain this or, well, that's what this means. No, no, we, we can just be thankful for God's honesty. God's word is always true. We don't have to apologize for God's word. We don't have to try to explain God's word. God's word is what's true. Right? So we show honor. Uh, we, we honor her stature. Because God is good and because God is wise, we can trust his counsel, which means we can also trust his word here. This doesn't make the husband better. It doesn't make him superior. None of that is implied, nor is it suggested. This is a reference to the reality that men are typically larger and physically stronger than women. Now, you might say, well, there are, there are exceptions. And I'm going to say, right, those are exceptions. But the standard rule, and God's telling us this, is that typically husbands are going to be stronger than their wives. And so we don't have to fight against that. We just lean into it. Husbands, honor her stature by using your strength as an asset for her. See, the strength of a husband should function as a protective measure that allows their wife to flourish. Your strength shouldn't be used to intimidate. It shouldn't be used to coerce. It should be that your wife knows I am protected and I can flourish under the strength of my husband. You honor her stature. Secondly, you honor her position. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now, <laughs> This is kind of a stunning thing that Peter has to tell us that they're co-heirs with us. Maybe he's just wanting to reinforce that. Maybe they were struggling with that. We don't know. But the point being, your wife is a fellow heir. She's a fellow partaker of the glories of the gospel with you. This is what Paul talks about in Galatians 3, right? That we're all one in Christ. There's no distinction. Now, yes, there's an order that God intends in marriage, but that order does not imply a superiority or an inferiority of either gender. We are co-heirs. And then notice where it finishes. <laughs> this, is a, this is a surprising line. So that your prayers may not be hindered. 
I'm not sure if I can think of a better verse in the Bible that motivates obedience quite like that one. You want me to listen to you? Then do what I say. That's essentially what God's saying to the men. You honor your wife so your prayer is not hindered. Don't miss this, church. God does not hear the prayers of a defiant heart. You hear that? God doesn't hear the prayers of a defiant heart. There's a clear connection between the conduct or the heart of an individual and the efficacy of their prayer. And I don't really want to soften this because it's not intended to be softened. So you honor your wife so that your prayer is not hindered. That's a great motivation. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Husbands, you live with your wife in an understanding way. There's a lot. There's a lot to this. A lot that probably is emotionally wrapped up in this. And so I want to give us a moment just to reflect, consider, think, take items before the Lord. So I'm going to ask a few questions. I'd encourage you to just close your eyes and let the Lord do work. If you want to write them down, that's fine. They'll come out in the front of the desk. You can get them from me later, whatever the case may be. But I, I would far rather you interact and engage with these as opposed to, i got to get them written down. So here we go. Number one, are you seeking to adorn your inner person above your outer person? Is that the pursuit? I want to adorn the inner person. Or are, are adjustments needed in your life? This isn't just for you women. Men, I'm asking you as well. What are you pursuing? What are you complimenting? What are you talking about? Are we seeking to adorn the inner person? Above the outer person. Secondly, have you put your hope exclusively in God? Right? The example of Sarah who put her hope in God. Here's how you know you've put your hope in God. You're free to obey everything that God commands of you. That's when you know you're hoping in God. You'll do whatever God tells you to do. Number three, Wives, will you submit to your own husband? This is God's word to you. And number four, husbands, will you live with your wife in an understanding way? This too is God's word to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for the ways that your word uh, cuts through uh, things within us, addresses things in us, encourages us, reminds us, helps us confronts us, exhorts us, has demands of us. Father, we pray that we would sit under your word, we would submit to your word, we would obey your word, and we would follow your word because we love you. And you're worthy to be followed. You're worthy to be obeyed. That you are good and you are right and you know what is best. God, forgive us for ways that we think that we know better than you. God, forgive us for ways that we want to diminish or undermine what you've given to us. And God, would you help us, would you help us to simply obey what you've given us? We pray this in your name. Amen.